I want to revisit a series that I started last Sunday on the beginning of wisdom. I, I mentioned last week that I've never felt more inclined to talk about what biblical wisdom is than when we live in a world that has literally lost its mind. And in the middle of all of that, God calls his church and calls his people to a place where we can live wise in the middle of all of the chaos. And uh, I'm actually going to finish this, the second and third subset of point number one that I got started on last week. This one-hour service stuff, I just have to tell you, is a pain in the neck. But, but we're going to work our way through this, and we're going to, uh, I believe, share some things that God wants to do. I was asked how I feel about everything that's going on in our world. And for the child of God, I really believe that we shouldn't be living in fear or confusion. We shouldn't be sitting here thinking, oh, no, I don't, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I believe that we should, we should have an excitement level that's different from those that don't know Christ because this is an opportunity for God to show his power and his work through us. It's God's wisdom at work through his people in this world. And I believe that that should be the orientation of God's people because we believe... We believe the Bible, is that correct? The Bible says that all things work together for good to those who love God. How many of you love God? Wow, that was a way better response than the first service. And it said, those that are called according to his purpose. So we who love God are here specifically because we're called according to his purpose. And God is at work to do something good in the middle of circumstances that don't seem necessarily bent toward that. So God has specifically chosen your lifespan to overlap everything that is going on right now. He chose to bring you to life and to plant you firmly in the middle of this generation so that you could be called according to his purpose right now. Now that's kind of exciting. Out of everywhere that God could have put you and everything, he chose you for this. And he recognized that that takes wisdom. And so we don't get fearful of everything that's going on because we know that God's divine hand is always at work. We would be very concerned if God were not in control. But how many of you know that God is in control of everything that is taking place? The reason that we don't have to fear is because this is already played out for God. He knows how it's going to end up. He is directing it and he's specifically moving things the way he wants it to go because he is in leadership of all of this. And so as God leads us to grow in wisdom and maturity, the secret for that and the secret to managing that over a lifetime for us is, is learning to manage spiritual growth and the change that comes with that with the, with the things that will never change within our life as it relates to our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that I have liked about Facebook is it's got this thing that kicks up and it reminds you of things that took place years ago. In fact, every day when you open it up, it starts out with a memories thing. I've looked at your memories and I just want you to know, you don't look the same as you did 10 years ago. In fact, we recognize when we look at those pictures that we don't look the same as we did then. Some of your kids have grown massively. And you manage that change by when they grow, you buy them new clothes because they're not going to fit into the same thing that they did when they were children. And, 
as we grow, we have learned physically to manage that change so that we can get along with it. How many of you know that spiritually there's growth that brings change to your life? You should never be able to look back on your life and see times where you were closer to the Lord than you are today because as we grow in the Lord and in His wisdom and in His knowledge, we begin to change. Our faith grows stronger. There are things that we begin to understand of the Word more and more. But we also come to an understanding that you can grow up physically and still show no extra wisdom. Chronological age does not necessarily show spiritual growth within your life. And the reason we know this is because we, we all know some very knowledgeable and educated people who are not wise. We know this by the decisions that they make or have made in certain situations of their life. Wisdom is not something that you gain from a course of study. Wisdom needs everyday practical situations where you are faced with a choice and it's only as you go through the process of facing those choices that you then use discernment and then you must have the courage to do what is right over what is wrong and as you continually do that you grow in wisdom so we recognize that change is the only constant in life change is the essence of maturity and you will not mature unless you are willing to change now, a stubborn person will always be an ignorant person because they will refuse to change. As I was thinking about that statement, it made me tremendously grateful for our senior saints within our church. I need to tell you how proud and thankful I am for them because of the spiritual maturity that they demonstrate in our church on a regular basis. For those of the rest of you that don't fall into that category, I need you to listen closely because there will come a day where your maturity and your age will place you there. And I want you to listen closely because the future health of this local body of believers, this grace assembly of God, depends on you watching the example that has been set for you and learning this by living the maturity that you see before you. And here's what I mean. In a time where you have reached a stage of life where you who are our senior saints could demand that due to your financial support of the church or due to the tenure that you have here that the church reflect your personality that the church cater to your style and your preferences in its ministry and music you instead corporately have demonstrated the heartbeat of God for the future and have taken on a greater servant's role. You have come to the place where you said, the church does not have to reflect my style at my age. It needs to reflect that there is a future and a hope here. And so we allow a younger generation to have its style reflected in the way that we worship, in the way that we have our music. And in doing so, you've demonstrated an ability to change which gives life and hope to our future and our church and to our community. So I just want to thank those of you who are our senior saints for the wisdom in which you have lived your life among us so that this church has a future and a hope. God bless you. And why don't the rest of you give them a round of applause? Now that was very telling. Because there was only four of you that didn't clap. Which means there's only four of you that consider yourself senior saints. And that's probably why, because you're young at heart. If you want to know what wisdom looks like, that's what wisdom looks like. 
Last week, I told you that much of this study and this first part comes from a, a message that Dr. A.R. Bernard had spoken a year ago at, at uh, Abundant Life Christian Center, and I want to make sure that I credit him for so much of this that has allowed my thought process as we've gone through this. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, as we dive into your word for these next few moments, would you lead us and guide us on a journey for truth about you so that we can live wisely in a world that's lost its mind. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, last week I told you that the theme verse of this was going to be found in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And the Scripture says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're talking about the initiation, the, the opening of the door, the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord, the understanding of the Lord is the beginning steps that we have toward wisdom. And it said, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Last week we started in this first point about what is God like? I know it's just a small little subject. What is God like? And we talked last week about we live in a world that is trying to remove the divinity of God and give him human characteristics because if they are allowed to do that, then they can create a theology or a study of God or a belief system that will allow them to do whatever they want to do and still enter into all the joys that God has. And so we have to look and see if the beginning of wisdom is a knowledge of God, then we need to have a proper knowledge of God so that we can move. I want to add from what we had last week to this. God loves God loves. Who is God? God loves. He is motivated by sympathy, understanding, and generosity, which emanate from his love. Now, some of you that listened really close last week are saying, Pastor, didn't you tell us last week that God doesn't have emotions? And isn't love an emotion? And I would say to you, no. Love is not an emotion. In fact, love is accompanied by emotion. Love is stirred by emotion, but love is not centered in the emotion. God doesn't have love. God is love. It's his essential nature, and he will never violate his essential nature. Now, when I'm talking about essential nature, this is what we mean. When you know the nature of somebody, you know what to expect of them. Because nature is the inherent characteristics that determine their consistency in the actions that they have, in their reactions, in their words, in their thoughts, in their motives, and in their attitudes. So once you understand someone's nature, you then know what to expect of them. And so when we're talking about God's nature being love, we also know that God's nature is love, according to 1 John 4, 8. His nature is light, according to John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. And we know that his nature is life, according to John 1, 4, when it says, in him is life. That means, for you and I, we can always expect love and light and life from our interaction with God. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what the situations I may be facing, God will never act contrary to his inherent nature. And so when we describe love in human terms, here is the way that that often comes across. You know, I fell in love. I, I just fell in love. When we talk about it as if it's a guy walking on a street and he falls in a hole. And then he crawls out of that hole, and as he does, you know, he's emotionally intoxicated by whoever is the object of his affection. I fell in love. 
And this is what the world seems to claim and declare as love. The problem with falling in love is it justifies climbing out of love. It justifies that you can claim that the whole relationship was an accident because it justifies a decision to no longer love when it was an accident that happened in the first place. If love was an emotion, then it could not be commanded. But because we can be commanded to love, we know that love is a decision that is centered in our will. It's a commitment based on a decision. And that is why the scripture can say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That is not a suggestion. That's a command. And it can be commanded of us to react and to respond in this way. Because love is not an emotion, it is an act of your will, and it is powerful, and it is beautiful. And we look at this and we say today, I'm so glad that God doesn't have the emotions of love that we so often experience, because if he woke up in a bad day, he may be that he loves you today, but I'm not so sure I love you tomorrow. I'm not so sure based on the way that you've lived your life that I have all that much love for you. But God loves us, and he is loved because... He made a decision, and he is eternally committed to that decision. He made a decision to love us all, which then forces us into a response to his decision. Because God's example of love is one that is to benefit the one loved at the expense of self. And that is why love is always sacrificial by its nature. So when you begin to think of it in that terms, then we read this scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's the sacrificial part of his decision to love. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish and have eternal life. In other words, here's God making a decision that is centered on his nature, that he is going to love the world, and then he says, the response to that love for you and I is that we are the whosoevers that come to him by the only door that he has given to us by the person of Jesus Christ, his son. And there's some people that are confused about this theology and about the terminology of God's love and how they respond to it because here's, here's what happens in our world. There are some that believe that since God is love, and we know that to be true, and since he has made the choice out of his will to love, and we know that to be true, that he then becomes very subjective in the way that he excuses disobedience. In other words, we know that disobedience to God is sin, and sin is a destructive behavior. But there are those that have created a belief system of God that his love is so strong that he will just kind of overlook the things that are going on within your life. And that God's love will force him to overlook sin. If that were true, listen closely, if that were true, then God is the ultimate enabler. An enabler is one who supports or provides the means for other individuals to persist in self-destructive behavior. 
And although God loves and God is love and it emanates from him, he will not enable you to live a life of sin. I had a conversation with an individual, and as our talk went along, it became very clear to me that this individual was trying to create a, th a theology or a system of belief about God that would allow them to live any way they wanted to with the assurance that they were going to automatically inherit God's heaven. And as we went through scriptures together that contradicted the behavior or the path that they wanted to go on and, and began to be corrected by the scripture, the individual would loudly respond, but God loves me just the way I am. And every time confronted with, with scripture that would, that would correct, it was, but God loves me just the way I am. How many of you have heard that in our world? They declare, God loves me just the way I am. And I would respond, you are absolutely right. That is not the question. The question is, and the issue is, do you love God? Because it tells us in John 14, 15, if you love me, there's that command, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And so it's not just a theology that because God loves, he overlooks or he enables me to live in however I choose. It's a command that says, I am loving you. I always, it's my nature to love you. But in your response to me, it determines whether or not you live in a way that inherits eternal life and can begin to apply wisdom. And your response to his love becomes the difference between an eternity spent in the presence of God in heaven or an eternity spent in eternal separation from God in the punishment of hell. It has nothing to do with his love because he loves. It has to do with your response to his love. So God is consistent in his love, and we cannot interpret that because it's a commitment that he made based on a decision to love. Which leads us to this. God is not only love, but God is good. God is good. If I say to you, God is good, what would your response be? And that is an interesting response. The question is, why do we feel like we have to say all the time? There's a song that we sang last week, and, and you know, it starts out with marching around these walls, you know, and, and, and then we get to this line, which has always really fascinated me, fascinated me about this song. And it says, that he has never failed me yet. Any of you ever stopped to think about that one? He has never failed me yet. It's almost like, all right, God, I know that you've walked with me my whole life, but you have other opportunities to fail me yet. And the reason that we put things like that in words is because we are the ones that need constantly reminded of God's goodness, of his faithfulness. And the reason that we say when I say God is good and you will respond all the time is because we experience life and things in our life that are not good. And we want to affirm that in spite of our circumstances and in spite of our situations, it doesn't change the nature of God to us. And so we have been trained, God is good all the time and all the time, God is good. Which begs this question, what is good? What is good? What does it mean that God is good. When we talk about our faith in God, 
we often jump to Hebrews 11.1 1 that says, you know, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And there, there are two words, sure and certain, that are a part of our faith. But I want to rephrase that just a bit in the context of Scripture and certainly as it applies to us as we move forward in this. And that is faith for us is absolute confidence in the wisdom, power, and benevolence of God. Faith is absolute confidence in the wisdom, power, and benevolence of God. It's an absolute. When you are absolutely confident, then in your life there's no room for doubt, there's no room for fear, there's no room for trepidation or anxiety or apprehension because those things cannot exist in a space that is occupied already by an absolute confidence in God. And so faith is the absolute confidence in these three qualities of God, his wisdom and his power and his benevolence, and it's in that order. Because his wisdom governs his power, and his power is the express to us in his benevolence. And that is what allows us to sleep at night. That's what allows us a peace that regardless of what we wake up to in the morning, whatever's happening in our world or in our community or in our family or in our life, I can sleep at night because I know God is good. God is good. And he, He's working within His nature to the benefit of my life and that God is still in control of everything that's happening and therein lies our trust and confidence it's confidence in his wisdom his power and his goodness so when we say God is good what we are saying is God is benevolent and when we say God is benevolent what we mean is that he is generously gracious oh aren't you glad that we live in the generosity of God there was an interesting passage of Scripture that's found in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. And Jesus was walking on his way, and a man ran up to him and fell down on his knees before him. And he says these words, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, in this response, says this, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Wow. That's an amazing statement because frankly I've thought from time to time I'm pretty good haven't you you look around and going I'm pretty good I'm all right some of you are smiling and some of you are going I don't know where he's going with this but when we say that we are good what we're really saying is I'm not as bad as him I'm not as bad as her. And so our goodness is based on a scale of I look better than them. But the scripture has declared as it relates to our goodness these words. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not one. None of us are good. This is the scriptural declaration of the condition of humanity. So then how then, knowing this, do we judge what is good and what is goodness? And frankly, it can be very subjective and it can be very contextual and circumstantial. So in order to understand the goodness of God, we understand that it has to be transcended. It has to be above us. And Jesus was saying goodness, goodness can only be known and truly understood by God alone. And that goodness that we have experienced 
Anything that we've experienced be considered good is because of him and from him and through him. Anything good we have as a result of it came from him to us. And only God knows what is truly good, which means it's impossible for us to be in a position to judge. So what Jesus is saying is that God is absolute goodness, absolute benevolence. And that's important because if we buy into the proposition that only God is good, then here's what happens to us. This is, this is what affects our worldview. If we choose to move away from God in the decisions that we make and in the wisdom that we display in life, if we choose knowing the truth to move away from that, then we are moving away from goodness. We are moving away from that which is good and we will resemble it less and less the farther we get away from God. And that is true of a person. Listen to me. It's true of our nation right now. It's true in marriages. It's true in families. It's true of community. If you choose to move away from God, you are moving away from anything that is good. What is God like? God is good. So that means that only what God considers good is good. If it's not sanctioned by God... I'm sorry, it is not good. Let me give you an example from Scripture real quick. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John, and he's going up to a mountain to pray, and, and while Jesus is praying, his face changes and his clothes become bright as lightning, and, and the Scripture goes on to say that two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus, and they spoke about his departure which he was about to bring fulfillment in Jerusalem. And Peter and his companions were very sleepy. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and two men standing with him. And the men were leaving Jesus. Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters. You know, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. And then I love in parentheses, says they didn't know what they were saying. Have any of you ever been so excited that you didn't know what to say? I, I, I just love that that was thrown in here. And it says that while they were speaking, a cloud appears and it covers them and they were so afraid to enter this cloud and a voice comes from it saying, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. So these men have literally entered into, see two different dimensions of existence side by side manifested by these three men and they get excited and they say, master, it's good for us to be here. Interesting word, good. Because then they go about it interpreting what they think good is. And in their excitement, they say, we're going to put up three altars or tabernacles. You know, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We're just going to have a party up here and throw altars everywhere and all of this. And then God speaks. He says, let me rearrange your thinking here. This is my beloved son. He's the one you listen to. He's the one worthy of your attention and honor. He's the one that needs to be exalted. So we see in Scripture, even by the disciples of Jesus, that good can be interpreted wrongly when we interpret it. They thought this would be good, but it turned out that their good was not sanctioned by God because it would have led them into idolatry. And this is what is happening all over the world and in our culture around us. People are choosing their own ideas of what is good. 
and they're building belief systems around it based on subjectively whatever they feel needs their attention and they begin to move away from the goodness and the righteousness and the holiness of God and as they do that they move farther away from goodness because only God is good and that is why we pray that's why we consult God. That's why we ask for wisdom and direction. And guess what wisdom is? It's the ability to discern good from evil. And if good must be discerned, then only wisdom can discern it. I'm going to ask the worship team to please come. In Proverbs 9.10, our, our theme verse, and the beginning of wisdom the beginning of the ability to determine good over evil starts with a proper knowledge of God. I, want, I, I, I don't have time to go into this, but let me just drop this on you to think about. Knowing what you now know about this, go back and read of the account of Adam and Eve and the tree of life, the tree of good and evil. And you begin to look at that through the eyes of the lies of the world, versus the truth of God and begin to see what the consequences are when we fail to live out wisdom in the decisions that we make. Proverbs 4, 7 said, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. Now, next week, we're going to jump into the aspect of how wisdom is translated in a transformed mind. You want to change the quality of your life, then change the quality of your decisions. What, what does that mean as God transforms our thinking? What does it mean in light of being made brand new creatures? Wisdom is the highest good that any human can possess, and we desire to be a reflection of what God wants us to be.